Good evening, everyone. Good evening, everyone. Everybody good? All right, man. Come on. It's hard enough getting up here now. Just come on. I mean, we get to do something that is a privilege, and that is to study the Word of God. Amen, guys? Well, it looks like we're going to finish her up tonight. So turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. I don't know about you guys, but I have thoroughly enjoyed going through this book, man. And, uh, and again, what I love about expositional teaching is uh, you get to keep the Bible in order, and you don't, you, you, you don't have that uh, chance of, uh, well, of course, there always can be a chance of it, but not likely to take something out of context. When you begin to really study the Word and you understand that certain books were written for certain uh, for certain reasons, purposes, and stuff like that, and you stay with that, you know, like the statement of purpose, then uh, it's, it's really hard to take it out of context, you know. And I say that as an opener, though, because um, we've got to remember, even in this last chapter, Paul's heart, I get the, the author of the book, I believe it was Paul, but the author of the book still has in mind that they're, you know, it's before 70 AD, they're in Jerusalem, in that area, and um, the, the persecution has just begun, really hitting the church, the early church. Um, there are, the, the Jewish worship is still going on, the temple is still active, uh, they're still sacrificing animals, you know. And um, there was this temptation for some of the believers to gravitate back towards Judaism, get back under the law. And uh, so the author of this book is trying again, once again, to encourage them, even um, in the beginning of their trials. Families were splitting up because of, of Christ, you know. There was this inner conflict in families, inner conflict even within the early church about Judaism and about Christianity. You know, people were really struggling over it. And... Uh, and it's amazing to me, uh, I was going to read through the whole, the whole chapter again, but you know what, for time's sake, we're just going to pick it up right there in verse 1. And with all that being said, you notice how he's closing his letter out. I think the most important subject we could study is let brotherly love continue. Now, that is phileo love there. Um, we know that within the Greek language, there are three different words for love, and I'm not going to bore you with all of them. You know, no, no, actually, there's five different Greek words for love. Um, this one is phileo. Same, uh, this is where we get Philadelphia from. It's a brotherly love. It's a friendship love. It's a godly love, uh, but it's not agape. It's not the, the God-given love that God can put in our hearts for, for someone that's just tough to love. But this is just friendship within the body of Christ, you know. And... Um, he wants them to let this brotherly love continue, even in the face of all the opposition that these brothers and uh, sisters were going through. And uh, there's a certain kind of brotherly love, though. And I think, again, Paul alludes to that in Romans chapter 15, verse 9. Don't turn there because I'm going to go through it real quickly. But where it says, let love be without dissimulation, again, my old, my old King James, it literally means let love be without disguise. That's the Greek. Let it be without disguise, you know. Don't put on a facade. You know, love unfeigned means there's no hypocrisy in it. It's just genuine brotherly love for one another, friendship. And, I, and I'll tell you something, just as a word of encouragement, this is where your friendship should be cultivated and made within the body of Christ. Will we have friendships outside of the body of Christ? Yeah, absolutely. I do. I still have a lot of friends that are out there. But the genuine friendships that I can count on are right here in the body of Christ. Isn't that true, guys? When you're really down and you really need someone to come along next to you, you know, I'll be there. You know, that song, you know. 
And uh, it, it is the body of Christ that has that kind of friendship one for another. But where does agape love fit in with all that? Well, that fits in with the, just that non-reciprocal kind of love that we have one for another. It's God-given, um, and that literally means it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. Phileo love, brotherly love, is just a, the characteristic of a person. You know, that he is a man that just loves to have friends around him, or a sister loves to have friends around her. Make sense? Literally, it means let uh, love be without dissimulation and abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. I'm still in Romans chapter 12. And he says, be kindly affectionate. Again, that is just the, the fruit of brotherly love. There's affection between one another. You know, yeah, and I notice when I get here, a lot of times, man, the brothers on brothers, man, they're high-fiving, they're hugging, they're, and you could tell there's affection. It's just not this kind of surfacey friendship. And uh, that I pray that you'll continue to cultivate that in your life. The people that God has placed in your life, that you are affectionate one to another with brotherly love. And then he goes on, he goes, and be not forgetful to entertain strangers. You know, don't, don't, for, don't forget that it's important, you know, not just to love your, that your friends, but even strangers that might come along, you know, that, and really where it says um, to entertain, don't be forgetful, literally means don't, don't forget how to show hospitality. I believe one translation even renders it. Hospitality, again, is a, a very important within the body of Christ, learning how to be hospitable towards one another, uh, inviting people over to your home, you know, or taking someone out to, to dinner uh, and just showing them you know, hospitality. And he says, the reason, you, you know, you never know. You might be entertaining strangers unaware. You know, you just never know who you're entertaining, right? And so I'm not sure if that's ever happened to me, but how will you know until you get, how would you know until you get to heaven? Right, guys? But there's a reason for that. Look, he says, remember them that are in bonds, those that have been in prison, as bound with them. And again, Jesus alluded to this even in his own teaching about weeping with those who whip and, and, and more, you know, um, laugh with those who laugh. You know, there is that Paul the Apostle in the church, Corinth, same thing. You know, um, it, what he's talking about here is like it, um, remembering those that are in prison as even if you were in prison. You know, years ago, I remember, I think it was one of my first trips to over in Nepal. Uh, there was a brother there, uh, a pastor that was falsely accused of a crime, and he was thrown in prison. And uh, and I was just invi- I was invited to go visit him, you know. And trust me, their prisons are nothing like ours. And um, uh, and when I got there, I had to go through a lot of hoops to get into the area where he would be sitting, and uh, just uh, just to get through all the stench, just to sit with him was was a, was a, a miracle. But be that as it may, as I was sitting there, I just couldn't get over his countenance that someone would come and just sit with him. And my heart broke for him. Now, he was really six months afterwards, but just, just, just think if you were there, what a visit would be like. Well, just think if you were the one being afflicted, what it, what it would mean to you if someone would come alongside of you. Now, he, again, remember, in light of the background of this letter, there were many people at this time being afflicted. And he goes, don't, 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 don't be hesitant to embrace a stranger. You never know what they're going through. Don't, don't hesitate, you know, to come along somebody that's in, in, in prison. Don't, don't be hesitant to, to sit with somebody that's been afflicted and, and take it on as if you were afflicted along with them. You know, come alongside of them. That's what the body of Christ looks like, guys. And Jesus, when, when he was teaching about the end days, right, and he's talking about that time period where he will separate the nations. He will separate the goats from the sheep, you know, and he will separate. I touched on this Sunday, but I'd like to finish that chapter. This is what Jesus followed up with in Matthew chapter 25, where he says, And then shall the king say to them that are on the right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. This is his reason why he says, Come, please listen. Get eyeballs, listen. For when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. When I was a stranger, you took me in. Naked and you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, 
you came and you visited me. He goes on, the righteous shall answer him, say, Lord, when did we see thee hungry or fed and you needed to be fed or thirsty and we gave you drink? When did we see you a stranger and took you in naked or clo- and then we clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and we came to you? And here's Jesus' response. The king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Insomuch as you have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Now we could stop there and say, yeah, that is a picture of what the church should look like. This is the encouragement that this author of this book has given this early church. Because these brothers, if they're going to if they're going to continue the walk in Christ Jesus, they're going to continue to embrace the doctrine that Paul's been sowing in there. They're going to end up in prison, and some of them are going to die. Some won't. And the encouragement is: if you see them in prison, go visit them. If you see them thirsty, give them a drink. If they're naked, go clothe them. Because when you do it unto the least of these, and when he says unto the least of these, he's talking about his his children. His sons or daughters. When you see his sons and daughters in that kind of a condition or that state, then you need to go and visit them and minister to them. Church, listen to me. That is our call today. That is our call today. And I have been with brothers, great brothers, who have had, who have, who have had prison ministries, who have gone into jails and, and have done Bible studies and had come alongside of guys that were believers, that were locked up. You know, and, and I think that, again, is the call of God upon all of our lives. Maybe we're not all of us will go to some prison and have a prison ministry. But we all know, we know shut-ins, don't we? And we know who are, who's sick. And we, we know who's been afflicted and who needs to come, someone to come alongside of them. But just don't go there with this, un, this, uh, this feigned love or feigned brotherhood. What I mean, no hypocrisy. Is what this author is saying. Go with a genuine heart that you really heard for them. You really want to be there for them. I'm going to finish this off, okay? King shall answer them and say, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of these, uh, these my brothers, you have done it unto me. Then shall they say unto them, Depart from me, you, uh, you cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his, and his angels. For when I was hungry, you didn't give me anything to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. When I was a stranger, you did not take me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. In prison, you didn't, you didn't visit me. Then shall they, they also answer and say, Lord... When saw we thee a hunger and a thirst and a stranger and naked and sick and are in prison and did not minister unto you? And again, Jesus now says to that second group, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you have, uh, did it not unto the least of these, you did not it, do not, you did not it unto me. And again, that call, the church, is to minister to those that are afflicted, that are hurting. Again, that's one of the things, guys, if I can just slow down for a second. That, that, that kind of bugs me, getting older. I, I just, I don't like it because I used to do so much more. When I had health, you know, I was younger, I could travel a lot more. Now, when I, if I travel, man, it takes me months just to recuperate. And I got this thing going on inside that I can't just do it. And that bugs me because what I used to do is that, this very thing, go to third world countries to people that are afflicted, who can't afford a Bible. They, you know, when I went to Bhubaneswar, uh, Bhubaneswar um, Orissa in India, they were, they were um, um, martyring Christians when I was there. And I, I just felt like I was fulfilling the great commission in the Bible to go into all the world and to make disciples. We're all called to do that, guys. And that's something we should all prayerfully consider, is to visit the sick, to clothe the naked, and I think it's James, yeah. You know, uh, what is pure and undefiled re- uh, defiled religion? It's to visit the orphan and, and the widow to, to take care of them. Amen, guys? So this is how Paul's closing out his letter here. Reminding them, forget about the Judaism. Forget about organized religion. Those that are going to gravitate back to that, they're going to do that. But for you, I want you to just have this brotherly love for each other. And I want you to keep an eye open for the afflicted and keep an eye open for those that might be in prison because of persecution. Just keep an eye. But just don't keep an eye. Do something about it. Because as Jesus said, when you've done it unto the least of these, 
you have done it unto me. I don't know. Feel led to tell one more story, and then I'll move on to this next group. Um, uh, when we were in Mexico, one of our trips there, at the very beginning, um, there was no Castle del Pastor. It was just some walls. There was a little trailer. They were taking some women in and stuff like that. So it was the, the beginning of our traveling to Mexico. And we had a handful of, of, of kids with us. And I think it was just Irma and I and Mark Russell, I think, was with us. Um, and uh, I remember we were in this labor camp. And it was one of those labor camps where the, the laborers, you know, um, really didn't have a lot to eat. And the children, they, they should have this strict or this dark, thick black hair. But they had these red streaks, almost every one of the kids. And so when we asked Lisa, our missionary there, she goes, well, that's the sign of malnutrition. This is just mean they're probably just eating, you know, the corn, bread or whatever. And they're really not getting a lot of nutrition. And, there, and this one girl, and I, I'll, I won't mention her name, but she was holding this little baby, and she was so weak that this kid couldn't even feed her herself. So this teenager had to kind of feed her. And we got back that night, and we were doing a debriefing, and I could see on this girl's face she was very, very distraught. And when, I, when she shared at the campfire, she just didn't know if she could go back to another labor camp. She just couldn't understand how the little child like that would be so ignored and neglected, how no one would give her the right nutrition. She just couldn't, con- she couldn't grab the concept. They just didn't have it. And so I remember getting her alone that night, and I read that scripture verse to her, the one we just read out of Matthew chapter 25. And I said to her, I said, listen, the next time we go to a camp, which was the following day, when you hold another child, just think, that when you do it unto the least of his children, you're doing it unto him. It is as though you are feeding Jesus. And that just changed her whole countenance and gave her strength to continue her ministry there. That's the, 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 the forces from outside just attacking with different ideologies, different cults. Just with, with just, you know, the, uh, the church becoming lethargic. There's no joy anymore. There's no miracles, no more. They see it, but the pastor feels um, powerless. And, he, he, and, and the temptation is to do more fire and brimstone preaching and whip your sheep in. But we, we know, honestly, that what the church needs today is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There was something Joe said to, to us, it was about 20 pastors. He says, yeah, we need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but there's got to be an, a, an, a remnant of believers that will be obedient. Because you will not have an outpouring of the Holy Spirit without a remnant of believers. Never. You have never seen an awakening without there are a remnant of believers praying and fasting for revivals. When the whole Calvary Chapel thing, everyone wants to give K and chuck the credit. No, 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 no. There was a tiny little church somewhere and there was 25 elderly people praying and fasting for a move of God and it happened. Chuck and K were just the instruments that God used. If we want to see our church on fire, there's got to be a remnant of believers from within that are willing to pray and fast that God would send, even if it's right here, even in this little tiny place called Virga, New Jersey. God, we want to see a revival happen in our little church. We want to see kids on fire for Jesus again. We want to see people coming out in the middle of the night to pray and fast for the church, whatever it takes. But it always takes a remnant of people. And I wonder tonight if, if, if it isn't the people that are here, if you're willing to sacrifice everything just to pray and fast, and ask God just to send another awakening, another revival, another Jesus people movement. You just think about it. You know, we, I've been doing this for close to 30 years. 30 years. And I always ask myself, where are all the people in all these years? Where are they at today? Hopefully they just found another church to go to and they're doing well. But I, I know for a fact that majority of them are back out in the world doing their own thing again. I want to see something that lasts and it continues. Amen, church? You with me? Come on. It's, amen. Now, right away, he says marriage is honorable in all things. And one of the things that was being attacked was divorce. The early, the early uh, 
the early church, you know. There was two different schools of thought when it came to divorce. I don't want to make this a whole evening on the teaching on divorce or remarriage. But there was two different schools of thought. And it was gravitating within the church. And they were embracing some of the schools from Hillel and Shimei, the two main rabbis of that time. One said that you could just write your wife off for whatever reason. Women, you were never allowed to divorce your husband. It didn't matter what. He could have been a whoremonger. You had had your stuck with him. But men, on the other hand, could just write you off just like that. It was Hillel. It says that women, if you burn your husband's eggs, all, you have, all they have to do is come up to you with a certificate, say, I divorced you three times, and then you had to go back and live on your dowry, just over burnt eggs. Shimmy, I took sort of a more conservative stance on that, you know, where he says, no, no, it's got to be something more than that. It's got to be sexual impurity or uh, misconduct, but it could be even if women, if you just weren't attractive, that was sexual misconduct. If you were no longer attractive to your husband, man, all he had to do was walk up to you, give you a certificate of divorcement, and you were done. That was coming into the church. You go, no way, that would never happen. Well, crying out loud, it's happening today. You know, with the divorce right now within the evangelical church, it's crazy. And when we read this, that marriage is honorable, you're thinking, well, God must really honor it. No, the Greek really, if you read the, the tense of it, it says you need to honor marriage. We need to think marriage is honorable. It's worth keeping. And it is till death do us part. Better for worse, richer, poor, sickness and health. You know, sometimes, and I I, I say this jokingly. I've never, never told anybody this. But, you know, when I lead these two kids in their vows. And they're all goo-goo-eyed at each other. For better, for, better, for, richer, poor, richer, poor. Sickness and health, sickness. I'm going, I'm ready to gag. It's the biggest lie I've ever led you guys in. It's a year later, they want to come in for counseling. I don't know if he loves me. I didn't know he snored, you know. Wait a minute, wait. What? Better or worse? What part didn't we get there? You know, earplugs, they work. There's all kinds of counseling out there. But again, it's, it's no new gimmick, man. Satan is trying to destroy that which is honorable, and that is marriage. Now listen, dangerous teaching. I understand that because so, so many might have been through divorce and marriage even more, more than once. I get that. I understand that. All I can tell you now is that God can restore what the canker worm has eaten. And he is a God of new beginnings. And I don't know, you know, when he does that, when he can make your life as though the old is totally gone. And I know God can do that. But it's that point on, then you have to decide if I'm going to honor God in heaven through my marriage. That they were the marriage bed undefiled. And And I've heard so many teachings on that, you know. And it is. It's a safe place. It's a place where you honor God. The marriage bed is undefiled. It's, it's your place. It's your bed as a couple, you know. And I don't want to go too deeply into that. Um, but you know what? Again, that is what the enemy was trying to do back then. He was trying to say, listen, if you weren't satisfied in bed, then go ahead and write her off. And that, but no, that's not what God has said to do. But the literal language is, it really, it really renders... That you need to remain to be faithful to one another is what it means, the bed undefiled. And look, look at the seriousness about it. Whoremongers, adulterers, God will judge. And the idea is he surely will judge. He will judge the immoral person. He will judge the man or the woman who commits adultery. Listen. Um... The enemy, I think, for... Um, well, let's just keep going on. I don't want to... Look, look at verse 5. He says, let your conversation, that would be the manner of your life, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he, for he hath said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Now, if you remember... When the rich ruler came up to Jesus, the young man came up to Jesus and called. He said, uh, good master, what do I have to do to inherit the kingdom of God? Jesus turned around to him and said, well, why do you call me good? There's only one that's good, and that's the Father, which is in heaven. So um, 
in, in a way, not in a way, what Jesus was saying either, I'm no good or I'm God. But the young man wanted to know how to get to heaven. And um, he said to him, um, keep the commandments. The young man says to Jesus, well, I have done these things ever since I've been a lad. So he was trained in it. He knew the Ten Commandments, thought he had kept them. So which one are you referring to? Jesus said, well, you know, to love your neighbor and to not bear false witness. Jesus quotes the second tablets of the law, not the first. See, the second tablet of the law dealt with his relationship with his fellow man, right? And he's going, well, I've done that. And he goes, great. Now, the way he gets him, though, he says, okay, well, then go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and then come follow me if I'm God. See, he wasn't willing to do that. So when he's walking away, the young lad must have been thinking, well, then I certainly don't. I can't even keep the first commandment to love God with all my heart, soul and mind, you know, not to have any bear any false name. And he can't do that. See, he totally failed at the second one or the first tablets of the law. Why? Because his riches were more important to him than following God. And when this guy, or when the author here says, uh, let, your, let your conversation or your manner of life be without covetousness, you don't let your manner of life be focused on the love of money. You, you just can't have both. The love of money. There, now listen, let me say this too, by the way, that money's not evil. Money's not evil. God, in fact, God says one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is someone who has been given wealth and knows how to use it for the kingdom. Not all of us have that gift. It is the love of money that is the root of all evil. It's loving that more than loving God. And that's what this young ruler couldn't get his mind around. And he walked away very sad. Jesus said, and, and again, it, it, it blows my mind, he said, how hard it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Why? Because he loves the world more than he loves God. He loves his riches. And when it says covetousness, you know, some people just have a hard time with that. It is a sin. I like what Psalms 119 says, incline thine heart to to thy testimonies and not to covetousness. Well, what does that mean? What the psalmist is saying here, if you really want victory over covetousness, then get your mind and your heart wrapped around the word of God. Start studying the word of God. You know, Paul the apostle said, man, I wouldn't even have known what covetousness was if it wasn't written, thou shalt not covet. He understood by the word of God that the love of money, that the love of, of stuff more than the love of God is wrong. And, he, and that's how um, he was made aware of it. Now the reason, look what he says in the latter part of verse 5. For he hath said, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. So when you think of that God has said, I'm never going to leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. You have Jesus, what more do you need? Think about that. What more that do we need? Than Jesus. If, if, listen to this. If everything has, just falls apart. You know, tonight. We, we, we walk out there and every stock crashed. And, and someone he pushed a button and nukes are flying. Everything you know is going to. Would you need anything else? What would you be crying out for at that point? Or would, be, would Jesus be just enough? Now look. I'm not saying that this is easy. I'm not saying you're going to go through the deepest, darkest despair or whatever of your life and you're just going to go, well, Jesus is just enough. You know when Jesus becomes just enough? When he reveals to you he's enough. And how many times has he done that in our lives? Some of us have some dynamic testimonies. We come to the end. And you, there's nothing else we can do but to cry out to Jesus. And that's all that's there. And in fact, I heard someone say, the day that you cry out to Jesus is the day you'll find him. But sometimes it takes tragedy to get us to call out. For these dear Christians, they're facing that. And he's saying to them, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. 
I will never abandon you. That's why when he says so that we may boldly say in verse 6 that in, in other words, we, we can say with great confidence that God is our helper. God's my helper and I don't need to be afraid. Now look at verse 7 with me. Remember them which have rule over you. See, there was more than one that went and ministered to that church there in Jerusalem. There were several that were sent to establish the doctrine. He says, remember them that have rule over you. Who have spoken unto you the word of God. Whose faith followed. In other words, they laid out an example for them to follow. He says, consider the end of their conversation. The manner of life. You know, that's pretty bold, don't you think? Someone who can honestly say, I want you to remember the, you know, the manner of life that I laid out for you, that I, that I set for an example. You know, I want to be able to say that at the end of my, that hopefully, you know, that I laid out some type of a life, a lifestyle that my children, my grandchildren can say, you know what, I want to follow after his steps. You know, I've heard, I've heard people say, don't follow me, follow Jesus. That's not what the Apostle Paul said. Paul said, brethren, be followers together with me and mark them which walk uh, so as you have, have us for as an example. Pattern your life after mine is exactly what Paul was saying. Pattern after me. In fact, to the church in Carthage, he says, I want you to follow me as I follow Christ. We all follow someone. We all do. We just hope and pray that the person that we are following is following Christ. Verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So don't be carried away by every diver's and strange doctrine. For it is a good thing that the heart, notice, the heart be established with grace. I need to stop there for a minute and just give you an idea of what he's referring. The the idea of not being carried away by divers and strangers. He's not saying that, you know, he's saying don't be attracted to them. Don't be lured in by them. You know, again, Jesus saying it's a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks after signs and wonders. Not that there isn't signs and wonders. There's going to be plenty of those. um, Even more so as as we approach the, the day of Christ. But don't let, be, don't let that be your motivating factors. You know, don't let that be the thing that draws you to Christ. Not signs or wonders. Now, what draws us to Christ again? And if I can just, hopefully I'm not being redundant, but it's the word. It's the word. You study the word. And, and when you're studying the word and you're reading the word, the Holy Spirit has a chance to speak to you. And he draws you to himself. You think about it, even in the life and ministry of Jesus. As soon as he started teaching, it was the multitude started to come. It's through the teaching of his word, not signs and wonders. It's a very, very unhealthy and weak and immature church that just seeks for signs and wonders. Don't be attracted by them. Literally, it means don't be attracted by some strange and new idea. Paul said in the book of Acts, Acts 20... He says, also, you know yourselves that men arise and they're speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Romans 16 says, now I beseech you, brethren, to mark them that cause division offense contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. Avoid them himself because they don't serve the body. They're serving their own appetites, their bellies. And by good words and fair speeches, they deceive the hearts of the simple, meaning the hearts of young Christians. And uh, it's something that we, sh- we, we should all feel very blessed, being able to come here on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning, knowing that you guys are going to be taught the Word of God. And, and, and most of the time, 99% of the time, it will be verse by verse. And I pray that that is what's going to attract people to a light. You know, it says at the latter part of verse 9, where it says, well, let me go in the beginning, where it says, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace. That, again, God's grace, that's what establish 
and, cre- and, and create strength within our lives. It's God's grace, his unmerited and his undeserved favor towards us. But do you see at the latter part of verse 9 where it says, Not with meat, which have no profit, them that has not profit, them that have been occupied therein. Uh, some have translated this thing to mean um, Levitical meat, like these Christians gravitating back to Levitical law and feeling they're closer to God, you know, under the dietary laws. But most of the Levitical dietary laws say stay away, you know, don't eat unclean feet, uh, food. Here, it's talking about don't try to be, be established with grace and not with the meat. So what meat were they taking? See, a lot of scholars believe that the, even the occult has somehow gotten into the church. And it was this cultic belief that if they, er, they ate certain types of meat, that they would get closer to God, closer in a relationship with God. And again, and, and I think it's, it's interesting, though. Um, because what, what, what we see gravitating into the church today, these different ideas about grave soaking, and I'm not going to belabor all these different things that are going through Christendom today. Um, and there's certain things, like if you take communion a certain way, the way you eat it, you're drawing closer to God. There's so, so many things out there today that are just weird. So, well, Harry, why don't you teach more about it? Why don't you teach us about grave soaking or the white stone doctrine and all these different things. Well, because we're instructed not to study those things. Did you know that? We're not to study the occult. We're not. In fact, if anything, we need to stay far away from those things. Don't even go and entertain it. We're not all called to be apologists. Those that God has raised up just to study these different things and to warn the church. For most part, you and I we are called to study the word verse by verse and line upon line and precept upon precept. We need to learn the word of God because that's what's going to draw us closer and closer to him. It's like studying the real thing. Don't study the counterfeit. I had, I had a friend, um, uh, her husband, and or they lived with us for a while. And she worked for a bank and she had to go through this course where they studied money where it went through on like a conveyor belt it just got went by them not real fast you know and they kept watching it over and over and over and then every now and then the supervisor would throw a counterfeit and they could always tell the one who could spot a counterfeit because they would go hey that's a counterfeit right there that quick that's a counterfeit and the, the, the point i'm making is they had they studied the real thing so long that when even a counterfeit went by that quick bam they knew it Jesus, don't be caught off guard with every wind of doctrine. Just let it blow right on by. Amen? And honestly, over all these years, and I'm going way back to when the holy laughter thing was, you know, sort of like there. And then it went from the holy laughter to the holy barking to the holy growl. Then it was the grunt. Honestly, there was a book written all about the different ways the Holy Spirit reveals himself. And the holy grunt was called Joy Unspeakable Joy. They just couldn't get anything else, so they grunted. You'll say, oh, that's ridiculous. No, it's not, not that ridiculous where you see thousands and thousands and thousands of people gravitating to it. Listen, real quickly, this is how crazy the, ch- the church can get. This thing with grave soaking, it's still popular today. That's why I bring it to your attention. This is where these teachers, pastor teachers, are telling young kids, usually young, all these kids that are singing with Bethel and um, um, Hillsong, those kids mean what they're doing. Those arms are up, and they believe they're worshiping God. It's the pastor teacher that's going to be held accountable for the teaching, not those kids. We've got to be careful. You know, but the pastor teacher is teaching that you can find a grave. You can go to George Whitfield's grave over in London, lay you on his grave, lay out there for so many hours, and you could absorb his anointing and go preach like George Whitfield. This is a popular teaching today. It's called grave soaking. That's cult. It's not even in the Bible. You see, guys? So it's still today. But study the real thing, and when the counterfeit comes through, you'll notice it just like that. Make sense? He is our helper. Look at verse 10. It's where it says, We have an altar thereof, or whereof. They have no right to eat, which serve the, the tabernacle. For the body of those beasts 
whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin or burn without the camp. The beast is taking out the body. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Speaking of Calvary, his body was taken outside the gate. So let us go forth there, uh, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his uh, reproach. You know, bearing, not being ashamed of what Jesus has done for us. Listen, what he's saying here, again, and he's dealing with a bunch of Judaism here. What he's saying is here, right, they would bring in this car, they would bring in this carcass, drain the blood, the blood would go into the temple to be poured out, the carcass would be taken outside the camp and would be destroyed out there. And it's just saying here, just like Jesus, his body was taken outside the camp. His body was hung on a hill called Calvary, but his blood went onto the altar a heavenly altar that cleansed us from all of our sins. And that's why he says in verse 13, let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp bearing his reproach. Don't be ashamed of the cross. Listen, don't run into religion. Don't run into organized religion. And that's what they were doing. They were trying to go back into the old Levitical system under the old Aaronic priesthood and he's trying to tell them, no, don't. Let's bear the same reproach. For here have we no continual city, continuing city, but we seek one to come. Peter said it this way. Nevertheless, we, according to the promise, we look for a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness, man. And that is coming, isn't it, guys? And some of us believe kind of soon. Kind of soon. Verse 15 says, by him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips given thanks to his name. The sacrifice of praise. I love that, guys. Sometimes it is a sacrifice. And honestly, guys, there's two ways you can look at this, you know. There are times where praising God just comes so easy, doesn't it? You come in here sometimes on a Sunday or a Wednesday, you know, and it's just that, I don't know, you can just sense the Holy Spirit is moving and you've had a great day all day and you're just, it's nothing to throw their hands up and worship and praise Him, you know. But isn't there times, guys, where you do it just out of obedience? And sometimes it is a sacrifice, isn't it? You know, to come in the courts of praise with a voice of joy. You know, guys, sometimes praising God and worshiping God, if we think of it as a offering before him, it makes the sacrifice a little easier. You know, I just sacrifice this. I offer this to you. You are worthy of this. And man, do the hearts change. Psalms fifty twenty three says, Whoso offer praise glorifies me. And isn't that what... Worshiping is and praising is all about glorifying our Father. And again, just be careful, guys. Study the scriptures. Know how a worship song should sound. You know, honestly, what I hear a lot today is where um, where we're singing, like we're kind of singing to God. And it's almost as a, a demand. We're asking something. We want something where real, real praise and worship is the recognition of what he has done and how he wants to bless his church. It's more God speaking to us, to his people as we worship. But every time we do praise him, we glorify him. Verse 16 says, but uh, to do good and to communicate, forget not. Just don't forget For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. And again, what he's trying to communicate to that church is don't, again, don't forget to do good and to share in those things that are in need. You know, it's easy, God. Not well. You you think of Psalms 37 where it just simply says, trust in the Lord and just do good. If you're confused, fall on Psalms 37 verse 3. If you're not sure, just fall on Psalms 37, verse 3. Just trust in the Lord and just do good. Do what's right. And, that, and I'll tell you what, that probably really packed uh, pack a punch for those Christians then in the midst of all that turmoil, confusion, 
heartache. Just trust the Lord. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not what? And in all your ways do what? Acknowledge him. And what will happen? He'll direct your path. Trust the Lord and just do good. Verse 17 says, Obey them that have rule over you. He goes right back to this idea about their spiritual leaders. To obey them, that have rule over you. And the word when it says submit there, listen, it doesn't, it's not about um, this lording over. In fact, when he was dealing with the Christians, Jesus, he says, don't be like the Gentiles who want to lord over you. Now, he talked about submitting one to another. But there are people that God places within our lives, all of us. It doesn't matter if you're standing behind a pulpit. If, you, if I could just have your attention for a second, church, I think this is kind of important because we don't want to think in our minds like, oh, no, nobody's lording over me. There's no, But the, the word submit there doesn't mean like I'm submitting reluctant. It literally means just to yield to their counsel, to yield to their teaching. And I do it. Your pastor right here does the same thing. You know, I have a pastor and I yield to him, you know, because I know God's put me there. He put him in my life. He had the same thing when Chuck was still alive, that Chuck was his pastor. He yielded to what Chuck was trying to instruct him in. And that's a healthy church, by the way. When you know that God has placed someone into your life and you go, you know what? I am yielding to that, that instruction, you know. I'm going to follow him as he was following Christ. I know back in the day there was this movement, you know, the shepherding movement. And it was just where these elders were just abusing other Christians you know, Joe um, was in that before he got involved with Calvary Chapel. It was called, I think, the, the it was called the Shepherding Movement, and um, and you know the the elders were telling Joe where he should work and where he shouldn't work and how much to give the church and how he should love his wife and do this and do that. And it was it, to me was just another a cult. That's not what he's talking about here. No, he's talking about yielding to someone that you know. God has placed in your life as a spiritual leader. And the reason for they watch over your soul, at least that should be their motive. They should want to watch over your soul, watch over and make sure you stay healthy. As they must give an account, you know. And I think a pastor or an elder who has that role, that's a serious call to be a pastor. Not everyone should desire that. That's what Paul the Apostle said. Not everyone should desire to be a pastor. Because as much has been given, much will be required. There is going to be a day that I'm going to have to give an account for everything I've ever done as a pastor. That's a little scary, you know. Thank God for grace, amen? But a pastor should feel like he's going to be accountable. That's check and balance for him. That he doesn't have the right or the prerogative just to do anything or say anything he wants But also, look, that they may do it with joy and not with grief. You know, what he's saying in there is submit to them, you know, but do it with joy and grief. Make your job a little easier. It's difficult, man. It's difficult to minister to someone that's just you cannot make happy. You just, no matter what you do, they are the king of all Eeyoreism. How you doing? I don't know today, Pastor. You know, oh my goodness, you know. It really bothers me when I hear pastors say, well, I I try to avoid them. There's a reason why they're trying to avoid. No, you submit with joy and you submit because you know that God's in control of your life and he's put certain people in your life. And whatever they tell you, it's for your benefit, you know, and that's exactly what a pastor is. And, a, and what a pastor does. So he says in verse 18, pray for us. For we trust, we have good conscience, clear conscience. In all, in all things willing to live honestly. They just want to live honorable lives. But I beseech you the rather to do this that, we, that I may be restored to you, to you the sooner. You know, that was a desire that he had with all of his churches he established. He just wanted to get back to see how they were doing. Paul was a great man. I really, Paul was a genuine man. You know, I was studying this today, and I, and I, I thought, you know, I'm doing the life and the ministry of Jesus. Um, 
on Sunday mornings. I wonder what it would be like to do a, a life and ministry of Paul the Apostle. To really get to know this, this man, man of God. I don't know. But he says, now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. That great shepherd of sheep. He is our shepherd, isn't he? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He provides everything we need. Through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Make you perfect in every good work to do his will. Isn't that amazing that we don't even have to worry about that? That God equips us to do everything that he so desires for our lives. He is the one who who equips us. In fact, it tells us that he is, uh, that we are his handiwork unto good works. Handiwork, poema, that he, he's the one that does it all. All we have to be is willing to submit our lives under, uh, unto him. Amen, guys? And to study his word and to know what he wants from our lives. But he is the one that makes perfect in every good work to do his will. He does equip us. Working in you that which is well-pleasing. He's the one that produces that. And you know how he does? He produces that by the empowerment of his Holy Spirit. He does that through just that enablement of his Holy Spirit. I didn't, and again, guys, just as I'm wrapping this up, and Greg, if you'll make your way out here, I, I don't get it for the life of me or why the Christian does, don't incorporate the Holy Spirit in everything they do. You know, you always hear people talking about God the Father and then Jesus. We pray in the name of Jesus. But you know, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit in the world, Jesus said, and he'll be the comforter and he will lead you. He will reveal who I am. He will be the one that will empower you to be a witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the other most. And the church, for some reason today, is very reluctant to call out on on the Holy Spirit of God. Not that, he, not that he can't hear. I mean, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter how we do that. But it is through his spirit. Amen, guys? And uh, he's the one who equips us. He's the one that empowers us. And notice at the very end as we close. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I beseech you, brothers, um, suffer the word of exhortation. He says this, that just means let's urge the dear brothers for I have written a letter unto you in few words know you that our brother Timothy is set in at liberty Timothy at this time was released from jail with whom he was come shortly I will see you salute all them that have rule over you and all the saints they of Italy salute you grace be unto you all and all God's kids said Amen. Amen. Let's stand tonight, guys. Let's stand together. Next week, next week we're going to uh, have communion together. But it's going to be a communion prayer time together. I pray for our church. I'm going to pray for certain, the ministries that are in our church. You pray for your leadership here at the church. But we're going to do that as we're breaking bread together. So now you know how to pray this week. Coming up to Wednesday night, pray that God would just visit us in just a supernatural way. Amen. An outpouring of his Holy Spirit. How many really desire that you want to see that happen? Come on, raise it high. Man, I love you guys. Let's sing and we'll close out in prayer.